All right, so Hebrews chapter 11. As you're turning there, let me pray for us as we jump in this morning. Father, it's good to be here this morning. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessed opportunity to be with the saints and to talk about you, to learn from your word and to learn uh, from the saints who have gone before us. And we pray that you would, Father, teach us this morning, please, in the name of Christ. Amen. So different titles to this chapter are, or sorry, different headings that your Bible provides. These are the ones that I found. Uh, the ESV says, by faith. Uh, NASB. Does anybody have the NASB? What does the NASB have for the title? The Triumphs of Faith. Uh, any King James or New King James? No, that one says, by faith we understand. Pulling out of verse 3. Uh, NIV? By faith? Okay. The NIV version I found said, faith in action. Um, New Living Translation which I doubt anyone has. Uh, great examples of faith is what that one says. Um, we are entering a famous portion of Hebrews, and one of the difficulties of a famous chapter in the Bible is you very often think of it divorced from the rest of the book. Right? If you think of Hebrews 11, you probably don't think of it in the context of Hebrews because it's such a famous chapter it talks about the heroes of faith. People call it the, the, the hall of faith, as it were. Right. Um, so because it is so famous, it's easy to pull it out and not think of it in the flow of the author's argument. Um, and this happens with every famous passage in the Bible. Um, judge not, lest you not be judged. Right. So often that verse is pulled out, taken in isolation from the rest of the passage and understood outside of the context, which is very dangerous. Um, so I want to just provide a little bit of introductory commentary on Hebrews 11 this morning and, and how it fits into the rest of this book. So as we come into chapter 10, we, we have been talking from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 10 about the superiority of Christ, right? the superiority of the new covenant, and that has been discussed and proven uh, by the author up to this point. Um, There are many things that Christ is better than. What are some of the things that Christ is superior to from the book of Hebrews? Angels? Moses is most notably mentioned in chapter 2. Actually, 3. What else? The The Old Covenant as a whole. Specifically, what parts of it? Not so much in Hebrews. Certainly, you know, the law of Christ gives in the New Covenant is superior, but what is specifically focused on in Hebrews? The priesthood, right? The, the sacrifices, the, the atonement system that the Old Covenant set up, right? That is what Christ comes and replaces as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Um, and as we've talked about so much throughout this study, because you have come to that which is better, you do not, you should not, you must not go back. And hence the, the warning passages that are so prominent in Hebrews. As this theme continues in chapter 10, we come to the end of chapter 10, and, and the author starts to encourage and remind the readers of what they have done. So chapter 10, verse 32, he starts to talk about how they have been faithful. They have persevered. They have been looking forward to the better possession that comes through Christ. And he continues in verses 35 to 37, he encourages them to stay the course. Keep your confidence. 
endure. You need to persevere. Christ is coming back. He will make this perseverance worthwhile. The reward is coming. And then he finishes the last two verses of chapter 10 by saying that you do this by maintaining your faith, by standing firm. You do this by not shrinking back. And you preserve your souls through this faith and through being faithful. And as, as we always want to remember, it is God who is working in us to do this. Right? This is not us alone preserving ourselves, but this is us working because God is working in us. Um, Philippians 1.6 reminds us of that. I was thinking too that um, like the benefits of um, the believers now as compared to in the Old Testament mm-hmm. also. Yeah. That kind of comparison. That's huge. Yeah, and we'll come to that a little bit later. So as we come into chapter 11, we are still in this context, right? And so the author is, is reminding us what faith produces. He's reminding us that the people who have gone before us did not turn back. They had a, their eyes fixed on the promise that was coming, and they did not turn back from that. And so in the same way, we must live out this kind of a faith that does not turn back, but rather leads to decisive action as we look forward to the coming promise. Faith in the Old Testament, and this is so helpful because if the author of Hebrews is encouraging us not to go back to the Old Testament, and he goes back to the Old Testament saints, and he proves that they did not focus on the Old Covenant, then that is all the more encouragement for us not to. And, and, and that's what he does in Hebrews 11. Because when you look at all of the examples he gives, none of them are focusing on the Old Covenant as the fulfillment of the promise. Right? The Old Covenant is not something that was a thing hoped for or a thing not seen. That's what faith is. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And the Old Covenant was not that. The Old Covenant was visible. The Old Covenant was present. Right? Moses was a person in the past, a visible person, and they needed to look beyond somebody like Moses. The sacrificial system. Right? It was right there in front of them. It was not a thing hoped for, a thing not seen. The rest that they in part achieved in Canaan was not their final rest. The high priest, the temple, all these things that the author up to this point has has given as examples of inferior things, right? these are not the things the Old Testament saints put, other, put their hope in. And Hebrews 11 shows us that. Right? These, these men and women looked beyond. Were these things helpful? Yes, they were very helpful. But they were helpful as pointers, as pictures, as reminders of what you're supposed to truly put your faith in. Well, also, the first four people that it mentions in here, by faith, by faith, by faith, been around before, before yeah. the law was even given. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I won't cover this, but Moses is probably the best example of this. The author of Hebrews says Moses was looking to Christ. Moses gave the Old Covenant. Right? 
And he didn't put his hope and his faith in that earthly picture. Right? He looked beyond it. And so the example and the encouragement for us is to do the same thing. Yeah. And so this is a great chapter for the people who were struggling with going back to the old. The author of Hebrews says, why would you? The, the Old Testament saints didn't. They didn't stay in the old. So, so why would you go back to that? Right? And so for us, it's an encouragement to fix our gaze on something that is coming like the saints of old did. Um, and this feeds right into Hebrews 12 too, which we'll cover in the coming weeks, um, where the author says we are to be looking to Jesus. Right? The, the therefore that comes out of Hebrews 11 is really a therefore that reaches back through all the chapters previously covered. And he says in chapter 12, verse 1, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. And he has just come out of chapter 11, and he says that. And he basically is saying that this is what they did. All of these Old Testament examples, they looked to Jesus. Certainly not in the fullness of revelation that we can but that is who they look to. And so we ought to do the same thing. Abraham and others are helpful examples. And we'll cover most, uh, most of our time today we spent on covering Abraham because he is the focus of verses 8 through 22, which is the, the section in Hebrews 11 that we're covering today. But first I want to mention a couple other things about faith as we prep to discuss verses 8 to 22. Um, just to, again, give us some context as we, before we head into the examples that are given. Um, faith is called the assurance. If you have other versions, it might say the substance or the confidence or the reality of things hoped for. So faith is this, this foundational, firm thing. Okay? It's the assurance or, or the substance of things hoped for. So faith is given as this picture of the foundation for the things that we are hoping for. It undergirds, it almost proves that those coming things are real. This is very interesting. It has a a substantive, substantial quality to it. Um, It is also described as the conviction or the evidence or the assurance of things not seen. So, faith is a proof that the unseen things are real. Make sense? Okay. He's, he's not specifically defining faith right here, but he's saying that faith is a proof that, for example, God exists, that heaven is real, that our hope and eternity is a true hope. Faith is evidence of that. This made me think about why is faith an evidence? And I, because if I say that I believe in, let's see, uh, it's currently March Madness. Does everybody know what March Madness is? This is the biggest collegiate basketball month 
of the year. It's quite a fun tournament. 64 teams get entered into a basketball tournament and one wins. Single elimination, it's a lot of fun. If I say that I believe that Liberty University, okay, same Christian Liberty University that we are familiar with, they're in the tournament, they are a 12 seed, which is not a good seed. If I say that I believe that they are going to win, is that evidence that they are going to win? Because I have believed. No. Well, not necessarily. You, if you've watched the team on television a few times during the course of the year, um, you could be you could be making a sound analysis of uh, of their team. Right. But uh, if I said that, I would not be because they're not that good. Uh, but if if I, if I say Duke is going to win, number one overall seed, best player in the country on their team. Uh, it's a more logical choice, but is that evidence that they are going to win? No. So why is my belief in God or my belief in an eternal hope evidence that it is real? What's different? See, my belief is useless if it is only mine. evidence of God all around us all the time. And also, we look back at these examples that he gives here for Enoch, Abel, Abraham, Noah, and so forth. And we we read about their stories, we read about their experiences, and we observe their faith. And we know that it came to fruition and that it was was Mm -hmm. validated. And so from that, with repeated stories about other people's experiences, and, and, and also seeing our own. I mean, I see evidences of God's working in this world now all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, it depends. If you're looking for that, you'll see it. If you're not, it'll, it'll, it'll kind of just go right by. You don't even you just think it's uh, happenstance or mm-hmm. you know, some sort of... Uh, so I would say those are true statements that help our faith, but I wouldn't make our faith part of the evidence. Um, and those arguments, right? But those arguments could also apply to a Muslim. They could also apply to a Buddhist. They could also make those same arguments. They wouldn't be right, but they could make them, right? How about knowing the character of God, and we see that some of it through His promises, He's faithful and He's just, and what He says. Mm-hmm. And that gives us reason to have confidence in believing in Him, but it doesn't cause our faith to be an evidence, part of the proof that God is real. I know one reason why that's probably valid, but it requires someone to believe that there is a God. And kind of like um, what she was saying um, is that if you believe that God is who He says that He is, mm-hmm. and that He will do what He says He will do, then the promises that He made should come true. Mm-hmm. And that that again requires that you believe that there is a God. And so that I think is somewhat evidence. So probably maybe more other ones that even a non-believer might discover. Yeah, so that, that is true. That's evidence of God's faithfulness. But we're looking for why is our faith a proof or an evidence of God, of eternity? Is it because we display His power? I don't think so. Um, the only thing that made sense to me 
is that our faith is an evidence because it is a gift from God to us. Okay? Yeah, but someone might just say, good for you, Seth. <laughs> oh, yeah. You can deny this, but, but biblically this is true. Right, we look at... Isn't the substance, though, because faith believes in an object? Um, if you don't have an object to which the faith is directed towards, then everyone else can claim that their faith is oh, yeah. substantive. Oh, yeah. And all this has to be grounded in the Scripture and, and what the Scripture says, and that's where we're. That's why we have this faith. But, if you think about it this way, a human being is born a sinner okay, without the innate capacity to truly love and trust God. Right? To truly have faith to believe in God that He is our Savior, that He has redeemed us. Right? That there is a hope coming after this life. Human beings are not born with that. That's why Ephesians 2 right, talks about faith being a gift. Right? You have been saved by grace through faith, which is a gift of God. Right? So if you have something in you that is not natural to you, if you have been given something that causes you to believe in a way that is not of yourself, then by the very fact that you have that thing, it proves that somebody gave it to you. Right? It, it is evidence of the giver. Does that make sense? Remember what it says in Romans? In Romans 1 where it says, uh, because that which is known about God is evident within him, for God made it. That, that's more of a condemning statement that, that people should believe, but they don't. Because that, that believing faith is not innate, but rather it is a gift. Right? Yeah. Um, because Christ is the object of our faith, the transformed lives by that faith in Christ is the very production or substance of faith that says it's real. Mm -hmm. And I've used that actually in, in evangelism and yeah. relationship to saying um, billions of people can't be all wrong. There's some kind of substance to that. And it's not because it's this metaphysical type of faith, mm -hmm. but it's faith in someone and something that has a historical place. And, and, and I would say more importantly, it's because it's a faith that had to be given to you. If you came up with this faith, then I could say, yeah, your faith is it's what you believe. I don't think it's right. But if this faith is given to you, it comes from outside of you, then that is simply a proof that somebody gave it to you, and that person is real. Right? Yeah. We're, not we're not born with a faith, but we're born with a need for it. Mm -hmm. We're born with a, a missing component that we yearn for and God is the only satisfactory uh, answer to that. Mm -hmm. The faith is the only satisfactory uh, and so we're not at peace until we have I think, a faithful relationship with God. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, because faith is sort of a generic term and mm -hmm. by lots of people I, I have faith, I believe in God and so on. Right. We have to kind of define it a little more mm -hmm. definitively and that would be for instance calling it a redeeming faith mm -hmm. a, uh, a saving faith right. um, faith that you know has an object, object 
uh, in that object is Christ, in Him crucified. And um, a verse, a couple verses come to my mind, Hebrews 12, 14, holiness without which no one shall see the Lord. Mm-hmm. So a faith that's void of holiness, if you want to put it that way, will not see the Lord. <clears throat> so there's an augmentation of the faith yeah. that redeems yeah. rather than a faith like James says, faith without works is dead. That's a dead faith. Mm-hmm. So people have faith like the demons. They have faith, you could say. They believe in God, but there's no redemption in right. their believing. Right. Yeah. So some people who have, you know, been into apologetics and things like that use things like truth as proof. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think that's viable, or is that an argument that can still be denied? Or do you think people who do not believe in God come to a point where, if they were to follow proper logic, they would have to come to a conclusion that there is a God? Um. Yeah, I mean, all, all of all of people's proper logic is tainted by sin, so that yeah. they're going to run into that difficulty every at every turn. Um, and yes, it has to be based in truth. And this is simply a argument. I would definitely use arguments from truth in discussing things with people. But this is just another aspect of the argument. And interestingly, this is based in truth. Right, this is based in our understanding that the Bible is truth. Um, I think it's one of the only avenues you can kind of go down where the, the faith and the proof of God can be exhibited outside of the believer. In other words, the belief that you just were talking about in faith is mm-hmm. internal. Mm-hmm. You know that it comes from outside of you, but no one yep. else does. Yeah. Yep. The display of his creation. Mm-hmm. The truth itself are the yep. kind of like the only things that others can see. Yep, um, and and, that, and that's true. I mean, and people aren't going to necessarily accept this argument just because it's a good, true argument. But I'm saying the author of Hebrews is using it, um, and he's saying, look, the the faith that you have is a God-given faith, and it comes no other way. And if you have it, that is evidence that God is real. And if that's the case you have confidence to act on it far more than if you just believed something strongly. And that's what these people did. They didn't just have a strong internal belief. They had a faith that came from God. And that provided more confidence than we can ever conjure up on our own. And so because of that, action comes from this faith. Um... And so it is our turn to follow in the footsteps of these men and women. And so the author goes from this understanding of the the Hebrews' temptation to fall back and from the, the greatness of Christ and from the understanding of what faith is and he says, look at these examples and do likewise. So let's read starting in verse 8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age 
since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Verse 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. So first example, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to faith producing the action of leaving home. I've never done this, uh, except for college, and that's not truly leaving home. Um, so I asked Larissa recently, how hard was it for her to come up here after we got married? Um, and she just explained to me the difficulty that I have not understood in my life. Um, I was born here in Southbridge, and when I was a month old, we moved to Woodstock, and 33 years later, that's where I am. So... Um, <laughs> Evidently, and I, I can understand this, but I can't empathize with it, this is, can be a very difficult thing for certainly some more than others. Some of us are good at moving and we're not um, necessarily tied emotionally to a home. Um, but we have to consider this was a difficult thing for Abraham. Um, when Larissa left Texas and came up here, there was a lot of things to look forward to, I hope, up here. Um, but, <laughs> but at the very least, there was there was definite securities in coming up here, understanding what was waiting. Uh, we had a home. Obviously, we were going to be together. Um, she had been up here for a while. She knew some things about this area. Like there was a lot of securities that Abraham simply had none of. Right? He could not look to the promised land and say, I know what it's going to be like. I know that uh, things are going to be provided for me. I know that it's going to be a place where I can settle easily and people are going to enjoy being around me and I have some people there waiting for me. He had none of this. He left everything he knew with his family and went to a place that he didn't know. Literally, it says he went out not knowing where he was going. It doesn't get much worse than that. And Abraham, by faith, went. Interestingly, he also did not have a history of godly men in his family to look back on. Right? Uh, he didn't have the scriptures. Moses hadn't written any of this yet. Abraham literally had no Bible. We have so much more. And yet the scripture says he went out. 
Because the faith that God gives enables a peace and a contentment that are naturally impossible. And so Abraham felt this, knew this, and he went. And he went to a place that had a future fulfillment, too. He never got the promised land. Like, he never saw ownership of the promised land for himself. Isaac never saw it. Jacob never saw it. This came much, much later. And he went. He is a great example, and it's why he is used so frequently throughout the New Testament. Romans, Galatians, Abraham is mentioned as a great, great example. He was a nomad living in a tent. Okay. This, is, this is mentioned here in Hebrews because a tent is not a stable, firm home. <laughs> right. It can blow over, you pull it up, you wrap it up, and you move. Like, that was the point of a tent. Right. It was not going to last. It was not going to be stable. But yet, what did Abraham do? Verse 10, he looked forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham lived a nomadic life in a tent, and he did not ever see a physical city. And that's what he looked forward to. Okay. He did have the benefit of God talking directly to him. And I don't know why he asked what it would be, because it hasn't happened. Okay. Directly. Directly. Okay. What? Why am I holding this? God is talking directly to us. Okay. You know the difference that I'm speaking of. I think it's a false difference. I do. Um, because we have better than Abraham had. Right? And so, it, it's an encouragement and a challenge to us um, when we are tempted with being faithless. Right? We have, le- we have more than Abraham had. Right? Um, and we have a history to look back on. We have Christ. Um, if God says go, go. Right? If you're going to get homesick, go. Right? If God calls us to something, we have a great history to look back on and great confidence and a faith within us that can cause us to have peace and contentment in our going. Abraham's Knowledge, the extent of his knowledge was not the same as ours. So, so he didn't see the promise as clearly as we do. But, but clarity should not change our focus. Right? He, he didn't see it clearly, but he focused on it. Right? We see clearly, much more clearly than he did. And so we also ought to focus on it. And one day we will see much more clearly than we do now. Because we are even now still described as seeing through it in a mirror darkly. Seeing dimly. And yet it is still far better than what anyone in the Old Testament had. And so it's a great encouragement to us. Verse 11, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive. You could also translate this, By faith Abraham also, together with Baron Sarah, received power to beget at the very least, the, both of them are um, thought of in this verse when it comes to them having a child. Right? And this was another example of God doing something that was seemingly impossible. Um, and more than that, it was physically impossible. This was not going to happen outside the power of God. And so we see that faith 
produces a confident expectation in the face of contradictory or, or impossible factors. And that's what faith can and ought to do in us. Abraham and Sarah knew it was impossible for them to have children. But it was more impossible for God to break His Word. Right? So, so when there's two impossible things, right, you pick the one that allows God to keep His Word. And it doesn't matter that it's impossible, just like the other thing is impossible. Is it impossible for Abraham and Sarah to have kids? Yes. Is it impossible for God to break His Word? Oh, yes. It is impossible for God to break His Word. So, I know this is impossible, but I'm going to believe this, and somehow that's going to get figured out. Right? And that was their faith. When we are confronted with things that cannot happen in, as, as we understand, but, but God's Word says they will. We need to side with God's Word 100% of the time. In Hebrews 10.23, the author has already mentioned something like this. And he says, Let us hold fast the confession of our faith without or confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. So brothers and sisters, we are redeemed. That's not going to change. And and if you're having a really hard, difficult time, maybe a struggle with sin, and, and you say, I just can't imagine how God right now can can love me, forgive me. If you think that's impossible, Go back to the cross and believe that God will maintain His Word no matter where you are at, no matter what you think. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven. God's Word is utterly reliable. This made me think of and I wish there were some younger... Hey, we got one. Some younger people here. Um, I, I hear from the youth so often how they fight against the evolutionary teachings of the, the modern school system. And it just made me think of this. Back in Hebrews 11.3, it says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. And, and evidence and scientific discovery that is propagated today says that's not the case. And that is pushed very strongly in the school systems. It's something that many people around you at your workplace believe without question. And there's good arguments that evolutionary scientists provide. They're not just crazy people. They have good arguments. doesn't mean they're right, but they have good arguments. Hmm? It's, it's impossible for people to see it without faith, though. In a sense, yes, there are also some good scientists that do support the idea of an intelligent designer because of what they see, and they're not Christians necessarily. Um, But you're right, to fully see it requires faith. Um, But it does mean for us that no matter what evidence comes out, no matter what the scientific world propagates and pushes, we need to ground our understanding of what God did in His Word first. And then conform all other things to that. 
Right? And if all the evidence seems stacked against us, I want to stand on the Word of God knowing that God created this earth. And it doesn't matter what the, the practical scientific data is. Sarah had every practical, scientific, reasonable reason to believe she could not have children. Right? A good scientist, good doctor back in her day would have said it's not happening. And here's the reasons, and I'm right. And she still should have said to herself, well, I'm going to believe God. Right? So, this is another example of the way, a way that we can do that today. To believe God. Take Him at His word. There's a common phrase, um, and you, you hear it here and there, that faith believes the impossible. And it, I'd like to modify that a little bit and say that no, faith doesn't believe the impossible. Faith believes the promise of a God who can do the impossible. Right? To believe the impossible is, is stupid. Believe in the God who can do things that we think are impossible. Right? There's a, a wonderful little uh, just picture given in the Old Testament as we work through and see so many couples that could not have children are miraculously given children. Um, Thomas Aquinas said that every miraculous conception of the Old Testament was, as it were, a figure or a picture of that supreme miracle which took place in the incarnation of Christ. For it was desirable that his birth of a virgin should be in some way prefigured so that men's minds might be prepared to believe. Okay. Every woman in the Old Testament who could not have a child and was given a child was preparing you know, creation and people to see the coming of the, of the Messiah. Because Mary could not have children. <laughs> right? Because she was a virgin. Verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Faith does not require physical proof in this life. It doesn't need that. And it also does not allow the event of death to call into question the validity of the promises. Okay? Say that again, please. Faith does not allow the event of death to call into question the validity of the promises. The promise being what? Particularly here. Um, to different people, different things, but ultimately the coming Messiah, ultimately our eternal hope. Right? We will, most of us, unless Christ comes back, will not see right, our hope before we die. And your death cannot cause you to question. It doesn't invalidate the promise. Yeah. All of these Old Testament saints received proof at the moment of their death, you know, right after they died. But they didn't need it to stay faithful in this life. And that's a very great encouragement to us. And it's a necessary reminder. Our, our faith will not be completely realized on this earth because we are looking forward to something that we can't see right now. We're looking forward to an eternal hope, right? a final redemption, right? heaven. Hope that is seen is not hope. Amen. Right? Mm -hmm. yeah. if you have something you don't hope for it anymore right? so we are literally hoping for something that we're not going to see until we die 
every single one of the characters in Hebrews 11 um, were compelled by God to exercise that faith. Mm-hmm. God pushes the issue. Yeah. There's no such thing as getting saved. I have this neutral faith. Thank for the gift. Thank you, Lord, for the gifts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'll just go on my merry way. There's yeah. no such thing as God letting us alone with just faith alone and not being tested. Yeah. And that's a great point because all these people are doing hard things. Abraham left. Sarah believed when she was not physically able to have children. We're coming up on Abraham when he was tested, offering up Isaac. Um, but let's look at the middle of verse 13. They acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. If you have been given a, a redeeming faith, your citizenship has changed. Right? You are citizens of heaven. You are part of the kingdom of God. You are a foreigner here. And because of that, because these people recognize that, they desired that better country. Verse 14, For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They are desiring a better country, longing with intensity for that which is coming and not longing to simply stay here. Uh, That's convicting to me. I I think I enjoy this world a bit too much. I'm not almost eager to get out of it. Not not in a, a suicidal way, but but this isn't our home and, and I want to get home it is the challenge here for us. I love that it says earth. They were strangers and exiles on the earth. Uh, it includes all of it. Right? It, it's not like they, they were living, you know, Abraham was living in Ur of the Chaldees and once he got to the promised land, he got to a a place on this earth he could call home. No, he, he got to the promised land and wandered around in it and still said, I, I, want, I want something better. I want something beyond this. If you think about, say you moved to England for a, a couple of months, right? you would be a foreigner, a stranger in that land. And you probably wouldn't care that much about their current political struggles with breaking out of the European Union. Uh, You you might have some thoughts about the Prime Minister, but it's not going to be something that you're really invested in. You may have interest, you may have discussions, you may have thoughts, but if it doesn't go well and and you don't see the government doing what you would prefer, you're not tying your hopes and your fortunes to that. Because you're an American. You're not an English person. And so all of that is not going to truly affect you at at your core. So it's a good reminder to us that America is not our home. You're saying not that the writers say not only would not affect the old covenant, but to not affect the world. Mm. That's us today. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's an election next year, but my hopes aren't tied to it. 
yeah, there's there's things happening on this in this culture, in this country, in America, but America's not where my citizenship is. It's not my homeland. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I was curious as to what your thoughts are as to why there is so much passion, even among some of the devoutest of followers of Jesus, for mm-hmm. the things that happen in our culture. You know, I mean, um, I like the, the whole pro-life thing. Mm-hmm. To me, that's something that absolutely has to be fully engaged here. Mm-hmm. Um, and. So close to slick. If this were 150 years ago, I'd be the first guy signing up to grab a gun and go yep. and go shoot the guy that wants to continue a vote. You know what I mean? Yep. If this was the same time frame as like slavery, mm-hmm. I imagine many of us would be those people who take up arms to bring an end to such injustice. Yeah. <coughs> because I think there's something in us, but we do get very politically sort of hyped up. And I just, right. when I when I see these passages and I hear what you're saying, mm-hmm. and I hear what you're saying. See, isn't it interesting that it provokes such things? Yeah, and it's a good point because the the call here is not to be disengaged. Right. But it is a call to have your priorities Mm -hmm. in the right order. And so you fight things like abortion Mm -hmm. and and the evils of slavery for those in our country who did that. Um, you, You do that because of the gospel, because of the word of God. You don't do it because you're an American. You do it because you're a citizen of heaven. And that's why you fight. And so your priorities come from your your true homeland while you are living in this temporary place of dwelling. And that also means that when your preferred political party doesn't get elected, you're okay. Because that's not a biblical priority. Right? right, And so it's, it's not a matter of disengagement. It's a matter of priorities being ordered properly and priorities coming from your true homeland. That's a good if they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, what are the Hebrews that, that this author is writing to? What are they tempted with doing? Going back. The leeks and onions. Right? If these people, he says, look at these Old Testament people. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But they weren't. So he's basically saying, you don't do the same thing. right? Don't think of the what you came out of. Think forward. Think, look ahead. And one of the most astounding sentences of this entire passage is the end of verse 16. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. Um, I can think of multiple reasons in the lives of each and every one of these people. Save Joseph, just because we don't know enough detail about his sinfulness. He was still a sinner, even though we don't, the Bible doesn't reveal that to us, right? Um, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob. I can think of many reasons. God should have been ashamed to be called their God. I can think of reasons that God could be ashamed to, to be of me. Right? This is an astounding verse full of grace and love and mercy. God is not ashamed to be called their God. Okay? Not because of the perfection of their faith, but because of the persistence of their faith that He had given them. 
Right? They trusted and they didn't turn back. And they stumbled and they got up and they trusted and they didn't turn back. Right? And that is our example. And, and in that, God is not ashamed to be called our God. That's incredible mercy. By faith, Abraham, verse 17, when he was tested. This is probably the hardest trial that is mentioned here in these verses. When Abraham obeyed God's mandate to leave Ur, he gave up his past. But when he was summoned to Mount Moriah to deliver his own son to God, he was asked to surrender his future as well. There's a quote from a commentary. I, I read, This is it. <laughs> Abraham believes God, he trusts him, and he receives Isaac as the promised son. And then God says, go kill him. Why not question God in this moment? Why not just say, God, this is savage. This is immoral. This is an overthrow of your promise and your covenant. Why doesn't Abraham bring up these seemingly valid arguments? This seems to cast a cloud over God's trustworthiness like no other trial in this, in this passage. For the man... I can see me wondering if that was the scheme of the devil. Mm-hmm. Questioning, did the God truly say that? Mm-hmm. Did God say that? Because it was a moral character. I can see yeah. that in my spirit. Very interesting word usage. Did God truly say... Where does that come from? Genesis. Genesis. That's what mm-hmm. Satan says. Right? <laughs> Yeah. This is this is insane. All right. God says, "Go kill Isaac," and Abraham's like, "Well, uh, that's going to be a problem." Um, God can raise the dead. We'll go with that. <laughs> He's literally ready to put a knife through his son's heart, and he says to himself, "God can raise the dead, so let's go do this." This is awesome faith. Awesome faith. And it shows a wonderful aspect of faith that we talked about earlier. Two impossible things. And Abraham says, I am not going to distrust God. Even though this other thing seems impossible, God breaking His word, if it's more impossible, I'm going with God. It just reminds me of like the unbeliever like, try thinking if you brought a friend from work in here for, to the Bible study and, 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 and you try to, like, reveal this part of the God's story and they just look at you like, are you, you know, yeah. it, it's just, it's, it is very, it's difficult without yeah. faith. It really is. Amen. And this is why this faith is, has got to be a gift from God. Right? We don't have the strength to trust like Abraham did right here. Abraham basically said in his mind, I know God can't be false to his promises, so logically I'm going to assume that something else that is extremely unbelievable will happen. And interestingly, God didn't do what Abraham reasoned. You ever realize that? Like God didn't actually let Isaac be killed. God did it another way. But I think the important thing is that Abraham essentially reasoned that this is God's problem. And sometimes we just need to do that. Like, here's what God's calling me to do. 
I can't see how this is going to work out. But that's not my problem. I don't have to figure this out. I don't have to understand. This is up to God. Let him deal with the difficult part. I'll just be faithful. One of the advantages that he had, or they had over us, is they heard heard the audible voice of God (laughs) in some visible uh, manifestations of him that made his his trustworthiness beyond question. Um, Tony said that earlier, and I'll say the same thing. Um, I think that's less helpful than what we have. But it, but it, present, it, it protects us or prevents a hyper-faith, too, by some people that want to you know, claim they have a vision or God spoke to them in yes. some mystical fashion, and yeah. they're banking on that, and it's only an illusion of their own. Yes, definitely. And that, Amen. If you're putting your faith in something that the Word of God does not substantiate, you're a fool. Like, put your faith in what the Word of God reveals to us, and right? not in a strong feeling you have. But I think also in, in what I said in 19, he says, Abraham reasoned mm-hmm. that I couldn't raise from the dead. He already had the example of he and Sarah having a child, yeah. which was impossible. Mm-hmm. It does yeah. involve the mind. Yes. <clears throat> we'll come to that at the very end. Um, Last three examples are three dying examples of faith. And it's interesting that the author does not talk about the lives of Isaac, Jacob, or Joseph. There's a lot in Joseph's life, especially, you could talk about. But he gives their dying examples of faith. And I think this is a a necessary thing for us to see because at the end of your life, you're able to give the best example of a faith that looks forward. Because there's no life left to live in which God can prove himself. Right? You're at the end. You know you're not going to have another year or ten to see God's promises come. And so in that moment, you have to die in faith. Because you're not going to see the fulfillment in your lifetime. And so it is a great example of faith. Because you are going to end this life still believing God. And that's what these men did. That is the example that is given. In death, the hope in things which are future and invisible shines most brightly. That's what one commentator said. So Joseph did it. And he even said, look, I know this promise is going to come true, so take my bones with you when it does. That is a great example of faith. He would never see this this promise come true. But he trusted and believed. A couple of points of application to to finish out here. Um, Our faith must be marked by persistence, not perfection. Again, these were sinful men and women who persisted. Not perfectly, but they persisted. Secondly, is there something in your life that would be incredibly hard to give up? Abraham multiple times had to do this. And the call is not necessarily to give up our children or uh, entertainment or politics or sports or a spouse. Or, but the call is 
to examine whether or not those things have taken priority over actively and faithfully following the Lord. So that if we are called to give them up, we can. That is the example that we are given. And lastly, we'll finish with this. This is part back to the reasoning that, that Susie mentioned. Romans 8, 32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? No matter the difficulty. And this is why I say that we have more than the Old Testament people had, even though you know God spoke to them or, or they saw amazing miracles. We have the Son of God crucified for us by His Father. And that gives us confidence, no matter what the situation, no matter what the difficulty, to say, I believe God. My faith is grounded in something that is incredibly worthy of trust. My God will give whatever I need because He has already given the most that that could ever be given. And so no matter what we are called to do, we can reason that God will be loving and faithful because He already has been in the greatest way possible. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time. Please increase our faith, Father. Please cause us to be more persistent in our faith that we might love and trust You and come to the end of our days hoping in the future, hoping in the promise that You have given us. Father, may we live that way now and act because of the faith that You have given us. In Christ we pray. Amen.